Chapter Three of Esther Waters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget. Esther Waters by George Moore. Chapter Three. Esther was one of the Plymouth Brethren. In their chapel, if the house in which they met could be called a chapel, there were neither pictured stories of saints, nor vestments, nor music, nor even imaginative stimulant in the shape of written prayers. Her knowledge of life was strictly limited to her experience of life. She knew no drama of passion except that which the Gospels relate. This story in the family reader was the first representation of life she had met with, and its humanity thrilled her like the first idol set up for worship. The actress told Norris that she loved him. They were on a balcony, the sky was blue, the moon was shining, the warm scent of the mignonette came up from the garden below. The man was in evening dress with diamond shirt studs. The actress's arm was large and white. They had loved each other for years. The strangest events had happened for the purpose of bringing them together. And fascinated against her will, Esther could not but listen. But at the end of the chapter, the racial instinct forced reproval from her. I am sure it is wicked to read such tales. Sarah looked at her in mute astonishment. Grover said, You shouldn't be here at all. Can't Mrs. Latch find nothing for you to do in the scullery? Then, said Sarah, awaking to a sense of the situation, I suppose that where you come from you were not so much as allowed to read a tale. Dirty little chapel-going folk. The incident might have closed with this reproval had not Margaret volunteered the information that Esther's box was full of books. I should like to see them books, said Sarah. I'll be bound that they are only prayer books. I don't mind what you say to me, but you shall not insult my religion. Insult your religion? I said you never had read a book in your life unless it was a prayer book. We don't use prayer books. Then what books have you read? Esther hesitated. Her manner betrayed her. And, suspecting the truth, Sarah said, I don't believe that you can read it all. Come, I'll bet you two pence that you can't read the first five lines of my story. Esther pushed the paper from her and walked out of the room in a tumult of grief and humiliation. Woodview and all belonging to it had grown unbearable and heedless to what complaint the cook might make against her, she ran upstairs and shut herself into her room. She asked why they should take pleasure in torturing her. It was not her fault if she did not know how to read. There were the books she loved for her mother's sake, the books that had brought such disgrace upon her. Even the names she could not read, and the shame of her ignorance lay upon her heavier than a weight of lead. Peter Parley's Annual, Sunny Memories of Foreign Lands, Children of the Abbey, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Lamb's Tales of Shakespeare's Plays, A Cooking Book, Rhoda's Mission of Love, The Holy Bible, and The Common Prayer Book. She turned them over, wondering what were the mysteries that this print held from her. It was to her mysterious as the stars. Esther Waters came from Barnstable. She had been brought up in the strictness of the Plymouth Brethren, and her earliest memories were of prayers, of narrow, peaceful family life. This early life had lasted till she was ten years old. Then her father died. He had been a house-painter, but in early youth he had been led into intemperance by some wild companions. He was often not in a fit state to go to work, and one day the fumes of the beer he had drunk overpowered him as he sat in the strong sunlight on his scaffolding. In the hospital he called upon God to relieve him of his suffering. Then the brethren said, You never thought of God before. Be patient, your health is coming back. It is a present from God. You would like to know him and thank him from the bottom of your heart? John Waters' heart was touched. 
he became one of the brethren, renouncing those companions who refused to follow into the glory of God. His conversion and subsequent grace won for him the sympathies of Mary Thornby. But Mary's father would not consent to the marriage, unless John abandoned his dangerous trade of house-painter. John Waters consented to do this, and old James Thornby, who had made a competence in the curiosity line, offered to make over his shop to the young people on certain conditions. These conditions were accepted, and under his father-in-law's direction, John drove a successful trade in old glass, old jewelry, and old furniture. The brethren liked not this trade, and they often came to John to speak with him on the subject, and their words were, Of course this is between you and the Lord, but these things, pointing to the old glass and jewelry, are often but snares for the feet, and lead weaker brethren into temptation. Of course it is between you and the Lord. So John Waters was tormented with scruples concerning the righteousness of his trade, but his wife's gentle voice and eyes, and the limitations that his accident, from which he had never wholly recovered, had set upon his life, overruled his scruples, and he remained until he died a dealer in artistic wear, eliminating, however, from his dealings those things to which the brethren most strongly objected. When he died his widow strove to carry on the business, but her father, who was now a confirmed invalid, could not help her. In the following year she lost both her parents. Many changes were taking place in Barnstaple. New houses were being built, a much larger and finer shop had been opened in the more prosperous end of the town, and Mrs. Waters found herself obliged to sell her business for almost nothing, and marry again. Children were born of this second marriage in rapid succession. The cradle was never empty, and Esther was spoken of as the little nurse. Her great solicitude was for her poor mother, who had lost her health, whose blood was impoverished by constant childbearing. Mother and daughter were seen in the evenings, one with a baby at her breast, the other with an eighteen-month-old child in her arms. Esther did not dare leave her mother, and to protect her she gave up school, and this was why she had never learnt how to read. One of the many causes of quarrel between Mrs. Saunders and her husband was her attendance at prayer meetings, when he said she should be at home minding her children. He used to accuse her of carrying on with the scripture readers, and to punish her he would say, This week I'll spend five bud more in the public, that'll teach you, if beating won't, that I don't want none of your hypocritical folk hanging round my place. So it befell the Saunders family to have little to eat, and Esther often wondered how she should get a bit of dinner for her sick mother and her hungry little brothers and sisters. Once they passed nearly thirty hours without food. She called them round her, and knelt down amid them. They prayed that God might help them, and their prayers were answered, for at half-past twelve a scripture lady came in with flowers in her hands. She asked Mrs. Saunders how her appetite was. Mrs. Saunders answered that it was more than she could afford, for there was nothing to eat in the house. Then the scripture lady gave them eighteen pence, and they all knelt down, and thanked God together. But although Saunders spent a great deal of his money in the public house, he rarely got drunk, and always kept his employment. He was a painter of engines, a first-rate hand, earning good money, from twenty-five to thirty shillings a week. He was a proud man, but so avaricious that he stopped at nothing to get money. He was an ardent politician, yet he would sell his vote to the highest bidder, and when Esther was seventeen he compelled her to take service regardless of the character of the people, or of what the place was like. They had left Barnstaple many months, and were now living in a little street of the Vauxhall Bridge Road, near the factory where Saunders worked. And since they had been in London, Esther had been constantly in service. Why should he keep her? She wasn't one of his children. He had quite enough of his own. Sometimes of an evening, when Esther could escape from her drudgery for a few minutes, 
her mother would step round, and mother and daughter, wrapped in the same shawl, would walk to and fro, telling each other their troubles, just as in old times. But these moments were few. In grimy lodging-houses she worked from early morning till late at night, scrubbing grates, preparing bacon and eggs, cooking chops, and making beds. She had become one of those London girls to whom rest, not to say pleasure, is unknown, who, if they should sit down for a few moments, hear the mistress's voice, "'Now, Eliza, have you nothing to do that you are sitting there idle?' Two of her mistresses, one after the other, had been sold up, and now all the rooms in the neighborhood were unlet. No one wanted a slavey, and Esther was obliged to return home. It was on the last of these occasions that her father had taken her by the shoulders, saying, "'No lodging-houses that want a slavey? I'll see about that. Tell me first, have you been to seventy-eight? "'Yes, but another girl was before me, and the place was taken when I arrived.' I wonder what you were doing that you didn't get there sooner, dangling about after your mother, I suppose. Well, what about twenty-seven in the Crescent? I couldn't go there. That Mrs. Dunbar is a bad woman. Bad woman? Who are you, I should like to know, that you can take a lady's character away? Who told you she was a bad woman? One of the scripture readers, I suppose. I knew it was. Well, then, just get out of my house. Where shall I go? Go to hell, for all I care. Do you hear me? Get out. Esther did not move words and then blows. Esther's escape from her stepfather seemed a miracle, and his anger was only appeased by Mrs. Saunders promising that Esther should accept the situation. Only for a little while. Perhaps Mrs. Dunbar is a better woman than you think for. For my sake, dearie, if you don't he may kill you and me too. Esther looked at her one moment. Then she said, Very well, mother. Tomorrow I'll take the place. No longer was the girl starved. No longer was she made to drudge till the thought of another day was a despair and a terror. And seeing that she was a good girl, Mrs. Dunbar respected her scruples. Indeed, she was very kind, and Esther soon learnt to like her, and through her affection for her, to think less of the life she led. A dangerous point is this in a young girl's life. Esther was young and pretty and weary, and out of health, and it was at this critical moment that Lady Elwyn, who while visiting had heard her story, promised Mrs. Saunders to find Esther another place, and to obviate all difficulties about references and character, Lady Elwyn proposed to take Esther as her own servant for a sufficient while to justify her in recommending her. And now, as she turned over her books, the books she could not read, her pure and passionate mind was filled with the story of her life. She remembered her poor little brothers and sisters, and her dear mother, and that tyrant revenging himself upon them because of the little she might eat and drink. No, she must bear with all insults and scorn, and forget that they thought her as dirt under their feet. But what were such sufferings compared to those she would endure were she to return home? In truth, they were as nothing. And yet the girl longed to leave Woodview. She had never been out of sight of home before. Amid the violences of her stepfather, there had always been her mother and the meeting-house. In Woodview there was nothing, only Margaret, who had come to console and persuade her to come downstairs. The resolution she had to call out of her soul to do this exhausted her, and she went downstairs heedless of what any one might say. Two and three days passed without anything occurring that might suggest that the fates were for or against her remaining. Mrs. Barfield continued to be indisposed, but at the end of the week Esther, while she was at work in the scullery, heard a new voice speaking with Mrs. Latch. This must be Mrs. Barfield. She heard Mrs. Latch tell the story of her refusal to go to work the evening she arrived. But Mrs. Barfield told her that she would listen to no further complaints, 
This was the third kitchen-maid in four months, and Mrs. Latch must make up her mind to bear with the faults and failings of this last one, whatever they were. Then Mrs. Barfield called Esther, and when she entered the kitchen she found herself face to face with a little red-haired woman, with a pretty, pointed face. "'I hear, Waters, that is your name, I think, that you refused to obey Cook, and walked out of the kitchen the night you arrived.' "'I said, ma'am, that I would wait till my box came up from the station, so that I might change my dress.' Mrs. Latch said my dress didn't matter. But when one is poor and hasn't many dresses— Are you short of clothes, then? I have not many, ma'am, and the dress I had on the day I came. Never mind about that. Tell me, are you short of clothes? For if you are, I dare say my daughter might find you something. You are about the same height, with a little alteration. Oh, ma'am, you are too good. I shall be most grateful. But I think I shall be able to manage till my first quarter's wages come to me. And the scowl upon Mrs. Latch's long face did not kill the pleasure which the little interview with that kind, sweet woman, Mrs. Barfield, had created in her. She moved about her work, happy at heart, singing to herself as she washed the vegetables. Even Mrs. Latch's harshness did not trouble her much. She felt it to be a manner under which there might be a kind heart, and she hoped by her willingness to work to gain at least the cook's toleration. Margaret suggested that Esther should give up her beer— a solid pint extra a day could not fail, she said, to win the old woman's gratitude, and perhaps induce her to teach Esther how to make pastry and jellies. True that Margaret joined in the common laugh and jeer that the knowledge that Esther said her prayers morning and evening inspired. She sometimes united with Grover and Sarah in perplexing Esther with questions regarding her previous situations. But her hostilities were, on the whole, gentle, and Esther felt that this almost neutral position was the best that Margaret could have adopted. She defended her without seeming to do so, and seemed genuinely fond of her, helping her sometimes even with her work, which Mrs. Latch made as heavy as possible. But Esther was now determined to put up with every task they might impose upon her. She would give them no excuse for sending her away. She would remain at Woodview until she had learned sufficient cooking to enable her to get another place. But Mrs. Latch had the power to thwart her in this. Before beginning on her jellies and gravies, Mrs. Latch was sure to find some saucepans that had not been sufficiently cleaned with white sand, and if her search proved abortive, she would send Esther upstairs to scrub out her bedroom. "'I cannot think why she is so down upon me,' Esther often said to Margaret. "'She isn't more down upon you than she was on the others. You needn't expect to learn any cooking from her. Her plan has always been to take care that she shall not be supplanted by any of her kitchen-maids.' but I don't see why she should be always sending you upstairs to clean out her bedroom. If Grover wasn't so standoffish, we might tell her about it, and she could tell the saint. That's what we call the missus. The saint would soon put a stop to all that nonsense. I will say that for the saint. She do like everyone to have fair play. Mrs. Barfield, or the saint, as she was called, belonged, like Esther, to the sect known as the Plymouth Brethren. She was the daughter of one of the farmers on the estate, a very old man called Elliot. He had spent his life on his barren down farm, becoming intimate with no one, driving hard bargains with all, especially the squire and the poor flint-pickers. He could be seen still on the hillsides, his long black coat buttoned strictly about him, his soft felt hat crushed over the thin gray face. Pretty Fanny Elliot had won the squire's heart as he rode across the down. Do you not see the shy figure of the Puritan maiden tripping through the gorse, hastening the hoofs of the squire's cob? and, furnished with some pretext of estate business, he often rode to the farm that lay under the shaws at the end of the comb. The squire had to promise to become one of the brethren, and he had to promise never to bed again, before Fanny Elliot agreed to become Mrs. Barfield. 
The ambitious members of the Barfield family declared that the marriage was a social ruin, but more dispassionate critics called it a very suitable match, for it was not forgotten that three generations ago the Barfields were livery stable-keepers. They had risen in the late squire's time to the level of county families, and the envious were now saying that the Barfield family was sinking back whence it came. He was faithful to his promises for a time. Racehorses disappeared from the Woodview stables. It was not until after the birth of both his children that he entered one of his hunters in the hunt steeplechase. Soon after, the racing stable was again in full swing at Woodview. Tears there were, and some family disunion. But time extorts concessions from all of us. Mrs. Barfield had ceased to quarrel with her husband on the subject of his racehorses, and he, in his turn, did not attempt to restrict her in the exercise of her religion. She attended prayer meetings when her soul moved her, and read the scriptures when and where she pleased. It was one of her practices to have the women servants for half an hour every Sunday afternoon in the library, and instruct them in the life of Christ. Mrs. Barfield's goodness was even as a light upon her little oval face, reddish hair growing thin at the parting and smoothed back above the ears, as in an old engraving. Although nearly fifty, her figure was slight as a young girl's. Esther was attracted by the magnetism of racial and religious affinities, and when their eyes met at prayers there was acknowledgment of religious kinship. A glow of happiness filled Esther's soul, for she knew she was no longer wholly among strangers. She knew they were united, she and her mistress, under the sweet dominion of Christ. To look at Mrs. Barfield filled her somehow, with recollections of her pious childhood. She saw herself in the old shop, moving again in an atmosphere of prayer, listening to the beautiful story, in the enunciation of which her life had grown up. She answered her mistress's questions in sweet light-heartedness of spirit, pleasing her with her knowledge of the holy book. But in turn the servants had begun to read verses aloud from the New Testament, and Esther saw that her secret would be torn from her. Sarah had read a verse, and Mrs. Barfield had explained it, and now Margaret was reading. Esther listened, thinking if she might plead illness and escape from the room, but she could not summon sufficient presence of mind, and while she was still agitated and debating with herself, Mrs. Barfield called to her to continue. She hung down her head, suffocated with the shame of the exposure, and when Mrs. Barfield told her again to continue the reading, Esther shook her head. "'Can you not read, Esther?' she heard a kind voice saying, and the sound of this voice loosed the feelings long pent up, and the girl, giving way utterly, burst into passionate weeping. She was alone with her suffering— conscious of nothing else, until a kind hand led her from the room, and this hand soothed away the bitterness of the tittering which reached her ears as the door closed. It was hard to persuade her to speak, but even the first words showed that there was more in the girl's heart than could be told in a few minutes. Mrs. Barfield determined to take the matter at once in hand. She dismissed the other servants and returned to the library with Esther, and in that dim room of little green sofas, bookless shelves, and bird cages. The woman, mistress and maid, sealed the bond of a friendship which was to last for life. Esther told her mistress everything, the work that Mrs. Latch required of her, the persecution she received from the other servants, principally because of her religion. In the course of the narrative, allusion was made to the racehorses, and Esther saw on Mrs. Barfield's face a look of grief, and it was clear to what cause Mrs. Barfield attributed the demoralization of her household. "'I will teach you how to read, Esther.' Every Sunday after our Bible instruction, you shall remain when the others have left for half an hour. It is not difficult. You will soon learn. Henceforth, every Sunday afternoon, 
Mrs. Barfield devoted half an hour to the instruction of her kitchen-maid. These half-hours were bright spots of happiness in the serving-girl's weeks of work, happiness that had been and would be again. But although possessing a clear intelligence, Esther did not make much progress, nor did her diligence seem to help her. Mrs. Barfield was puzzled by her pupil's slowness. She ascribed it to her own inaptitude to teach, and the little time for lessons. Esther's powerlessness to put syllables together, to grasp the meaning of words, was very marked. Strange it was, no doubt, but all that concerned the printed page seemed to embarrass and elude her. End of chapter 3